This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the September edition of Outward. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and I'm here with your annual reminder that summer is not over until the 22nd of September, exactly a week from when this episode drops. So don't let the haters tell you any different. Thank you, Brian. I needed that. Yeah. Uh, I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate, and I would like to extend a hearty welcome to the person who recently posted on the DC Queer Exchange Facebook group that she was giving away some of her pride gear free to a good home, (laughs) including her buy pride flag. Nothing wrong with the flag, she wrote. I'm just a lesbian now. (laughs) Uh, So I just want to take a moment to congratulate anyone who's changing flags these days, whatever those flags may be. Yeah, I I think that was really modeling good behavior in that in that arena. (laughs) Nothing wrong with the flag. No, my definition has changed. And that's fine. Everybody's great. Um, Okay, so this is usually the point in the show where we share our prides and provocations. Uh, But this month, we've got a provocation to discuss that is so provoking that it's the only one we have the time or emotional energy, honestly, (laughs) to handle. Listeners, we are provoked profoundly by the sad and sorry fact that Rahman Alam, our beloved co-host, is leaving us. Rahman, why are you hurting everyone like this? (laughs) I'd like to call you in. <laughs> I, I really thought you were winding up to talk about Pete Buttigieg or something. <laughs> a, a sort of more reliable provocation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm provoked by my own departure from Outward. It has been such a great period of time. I mean, how long? I, I think, has it been a year? I don't even... More than a year, because you were Over you started before more the pandemic, year, yeah. I think. The pandemic is how I measure time now. That's right. Getting together once a month or once every couple of weeks to chat with you guys has been such a balm. Like, I, it's like technically been work, but it's also just been really fun to kind of have someone who is not in my immediate family to talk <laughs> gay shit to. Um, so it's been really such so much fun. I don't even think that Christina and I have ever met in no. person. Honestly, that's so crazy. That's a crazy. huge provocation for me. I really feel like this yeah. is the most intimate purely virtual relationship I've ever <laughs> <Yes>. had. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of a, you know, it really speaks to what a strange moment this has been. Totally. Right. And continues to be for so many people that working relationships can happen entirely on the computer screen. And this is not a working relationship like so many others. I mean, obviously we are colleagues, but like we get together and have these intense conversations about our lives and about our opinions and about what's happening in the news cycle. And, you know, Brian and I get to hear about what Christina is reporting Mm -hmm. on in her other life as like a journalist. And so it's really interesting um, to have had this experience and it's been really fun to also produce 
a body of work that I think is really interesting and that I'm really proud of, um, that we get to talk about everything from, you know, lesbian strippers to a sort of in-depth conversation with people working as political activists. Like, it's been so interesting and so fun. And I don't know who I'm going to talk to about (laughs) gay stuff once a month. Yeah. You can still text us. Yeah, I'm going to have to text you guys all of my many, many opinions and my many, many provocations. Well, after you (laughs) sign off of this, we are going to have a whole segment dedicated to discussing how interesting you, in fact, were. And we'll decide that uh, in in retrospect (laughs) uh, and certainly let you know. Do you just want to tell our listeners uh, what's coming up next for you? What are you working on? Where can they sort of keep up with? Oh, that's such a good question. That's such a good question, Brian. I mean, I think... Basically, I spent, I would say, the last, oh gosh, since March of 2020 with um, my kids in in my life in a very different way, right? Sort of round the clock, you know, and I don't want to pretend that I was doing childcare around the clock, but their simple presence made it very difficult to negotiate my own work. And every time we recorded an episode of Outward, we discussed like what my children were doing, (laughs) that they were downstairs watching their iPads being bribed to be silent for 90 (laughs) minutes so daddy could do his recording. And now it seems, let's cross our fingers, that we are heading into a reality where New York City public schools will be reopened and students will be back in learning and having the life that they deserve, that they need to have. And I will therefore be able to make up a little bit for some lost time. And that I'll be able to stop dithering around and stop saying like, oh, the kids are downstairs at the dining table, so I couldn't possibly write a book. Mm, mm-hmm. Basically, I have to write a book. I'm scared to say it on the record. <laughs> but uh, you, you, you both have my permission to sort of kick my ass if I haven't started tweeting about writing a book, you know? Honestly, I am terrified of how productive you would be if the past year has been you being less productive (laughs) like i I don't even know how you've done all of the things you've done in the past year so um yeah i am terrified to see what comes next (laughs) (laughs) well thank you i mean i think again like it it was such an extraordinary time and if you weren't you know facing real illness if you weren't facing real privation as i wasn't um you know it was easy to feel lost and adrift for a whole host of other reasons just missing being around other people and being you know connected to normal life but i did try to kind of deal with my anxiety by keeping at work Mm -hmm. right by doing this show by working on the working podcast i will really miss you know writing is a very solitary business and i will really miss the um, monthly excuse to talk to you guys and hear what's happening in your world but of course i can still listen to outward so i will still have that little vantage (laughs) into what is provoking brian and christina on a monthly basis yeah, you should go rate and review right afterwards. So yeah, <laughs> make sure you subscribe. <laughs> I'll tell my friends about it. So uh, as a little parting gesture, we thought that we would like to offer you a round of goodbye prides uh, as you head out. And June, our senior managing producer, is going to join in on this. June, do you want to share your pride for Rahman first? Yes, I think of Rahman as being like Shaka Khan who's, as we all know, is every woman, it's all in me, as she said so many times. And Rahman really is, like, he's the complete package. Obviously, he's brilliant. But, like, we're looking at him. Because we have been on Zoom, we've Mm -hmm. been seeing his house, which is, like, the most gorgeous Mm -hmm. house. It's beautiful decoration. Like, 
this is the bitch that does everything better, everything more mm-hmm. beautifully than you do, and yet he's still lovable. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And also, I just remember when he would be in person, when, when we saw each other in person, again, he's got this amazing range. He would have these beautiful, like, bags, and then he'd bring out this super butch, like, water bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like... Not everybody can pull that off, but Ramon could, and and he's a model. He's a model to me, a model to me in every way. He he has the range. I'm just so proud. On that note, again, this is something our listeners have been deprived of, but Ramon has grown a gorgeously lush salt and pepper beard, Mm -hmm. you know, heavy on the pepper over the course of the summer, and... you know, it makes me wish that I could grow a beard, maybe for the first time in my life. Yeah. <laughs> the first time in my life of, like, meticulous removal of facial hair. I'm like, <laughs> wish that I had Ramon's beard. Um, yeah, it's real daddy vibes. It's good stuff. So my pride is just that, uh, a sort of note of gratitude, I guess, for your really constantly keeping the level of our pod high, keeping the discourse up. You know, you're the one who makes us talk about books and shit. <laughs> makes us have like opera singers on uh, and all that kind of stuff, which has been great. I'm kind of relieved that now that you're gone, we will just sort of devolve back into reality shows and <laughs> gay memes on Twitter. But thank you so much for bringing your truly uh, amazing intellect and taste uh, to the show. That's been really, really fantastic. And we will miss it very much. In fact, our producer Katya, as we were talking recently about other potential hosts we could bring in and kind of trying to pinpoint what singular qualities Ruman brings to the show in addition to being a hot dad. You know, not that we could ever replace him, but Katya said something like, well, he, you know, brings this real intelligence Mm -hmm. or, you know, intellectual rigor to the show. That's his niche. (laughs) Basically, like, he's the smart one on the show. Unlike us, him is. Me and Brian, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My pride about Ruman is... Even when we have been talking about some truly provoking people, you are always generous, Mm -hmm. maybe more so than I'm capable of being, always expecting the best of people, wanting the best for people. It's very sweet, but I also think it's needed nuance that we've wanted to bring to some complex issues on the show. But you're also a no-nonsense bitch when it's warranted, and that makes it all the more (laughs) searing when you throw shade. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, if reincarnation is a thing, I'd love to come back as your child in my next life because you just seem like such an incredible dad. I have loved hearing about how you nurture their interests, Mm -hmm. give them the freedom to explore all of your stories about how they meet people on the beach. You know, it just seems like your kids have my best life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, you guys, thank you so much. I'm like, I feel so embarrassed and so like touched. Um, You've gotten to come to your own funeral. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, that's a great way of putting it. Like, it's just it really has been so much fun working on this. And it's just been such a great pleasure to get to know you guys as people and I I don't know, it's really, it's helped me feel a lot less alone during this year in which I did feel pretty alone, I think, as I think so many people did. And I think that speaks to what Outward is sort of uniquely able to provide as an audio program. Like, you get to kind of eavesdrop on these friends talking, and that feels like so much fun, and that feels so stimulating. And as you said, Christina, like, sometimes it can get really heavy and interesting, but sometimes it's just people 
bitching. And <laughs> that's really fun too. Um, so it's really been such a pleasure. I'm going to miss you guys. But, you know, if you ever want to do an episode about gay books, please help me on as your special <laughs> Maybe about your next gay book. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that uh, that that makes me cry. I'm, I'm like tearing up a little Aww. bit. Um, but thank you, Ramon, for uh, all of your contributions to the show. And we're so excited to see what your writing time produces. I, I know um, yeah. I will be reading it. So best of luck and uh, thanks. Stay gay. Stay gay. You too. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so the show must go on. June, thanks so much again for joining us, and I would love for you to tell us what is on the docket this month. Thank you, Brian. September, as we have already established, marks the end of summer, and endings are a bit of a theme for Outward this month. We waved farewell to the wonderful Ruman, and later in the show, we'll be talking about Swan Song, a film about the last act in the life of an extraordinary but also very ordinary, small-town Ohio hairdresser and one-time gay bar icon. But first, an end to innocence, involving priests, Grinder, and... Oh, who am I kidding? No one has any innocent ideas about Grinder, <laughs> or do they, Christina? Yeah, so this summer, Grinder actually played a role in the outing of a Catholic priest by a conservative Catholic Substack newsletter called The Pillar, the two men who write the newsletter, J.D. Flynn and Ed Condon, who style themselves as journalists, used cell phone data that was publicly available for sale to find out that this priest was regularly using Grinder, visiting gay bars, and also going to a bathhouse. Now, this wasn't just any priest. This was Jeffrey Burrell, who was the Secretary General of the U.S. Bishops Conference. So just to put that in context, he was a leader in the Catholic faith community, which not only forbids gay sex, but also requires clergy members to remain celibate. Uh, so the priest, Burl, obviously resigned. But the pillar isn't done yet. These men say they have data showing grinder use among phones traced to other places where priests live and even part of the Vatican City uh, that aren't open to the public. So you would assume that these are, you know, members of Catholic Church leadership. To help us understand how this happened and what the implications might be for all app users, even those of us who haven't taken vows of celibacy, we are joined by longtime Silicon Valley reporter Casey Newton. 
Casey writes a daily newsletter about social networks and democracy called Platformer. We are thrilled to have him on the show. Uh, he calls himself an avowed homosexual, by the way. Uh, Casey, welcome to Outward. Thank you for having me, y'all. So let's just get this out of the way right off the bat. Have you used or do you use Grindr? Uh, yes, I, I have used Grindr. I've also used uh, Scruff, which is sort of a very similar app. And then maybe like a, a year or two before the pandemic, I just got both of them off my phone. I sort of came to feel like they're basically machines for lowering your self-esteem. So I had to put them <laughs> away. Yeah. So did any of Grindr's privacy issues have anything to do with it? Uh, absolutely. And in particular, the fact that when I deleted Grindr, the company that built it was uh, Chinese. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while I don't have the highest profile, I was really concerned that explicit chats or photos that, you know, may have been sent to me might somehow wind up in the hands of the Chinese government and, and could cause me problems. So it just sort of felt like just for good kind of uh, OPSEC as a journalist, mm -hmm. I probably should not have any ties to the company. And it was sort of then that I started using Scruff. But ultimately, I found that the apps were both the same and just sort of had other just like kind of personal effects on me that made me feel like uh, I would be better off without them. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I feel like there's like the social aspect of what role Grinder plays in gay male culture, and then also the more tech side of things, which we're starting with today. But you know, I also want to get into that cultural aspect. Can you yeah. kind of walk us through as if we're second graders, which we basically are, <laughs> how this church thing happened? Because, you know, I don't have Grindr on my phone, but I obviously have Google Maps and I allow location mm, sharing right. on a bunch of other apps. And I always sort of think like, yeah, I know this is like t technically bad, but who's going to do anything with all this data? And isn't it anonymized? Yeah. And I think the first thing to say is that if this explanation confuses you, don't feel bad. One of the main reasons is that the two uh, journalists who published this story have refused to answer detailed questions mm -hmm. about how they conducted their investigation. Grinder itself has been trying to get more information from the publication, mm -hmm. presumably so they could do a better job protecting their users. They've been unable to do it. But here's what we do know. Uh, as you noted, Christina, your phone is constantly generating location data that data is being shared with all kinds of developers, right? I am sure we've all had that experience of downloading a new app. It asks if it can have access to your location, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of that data makes its way into the hands of these data vendors. Data vendors want that data for a lot of reasons. It often has a lot to do with targeted advertising. But an important thing to remember is that in this country, the sale of that data is almost completely unregulated. We do not have a national privacy law in this country. We have a patchwork of laws that can protect our privacy in some ways, like you've probably heard of HIPAA, which protects you against the release of your medical information. But when it comes to, hey, was I at a bathhouse? Mm. Was I at a gay bar? There's no law that's going to protect you from that. So we know that we have a data set that's out there. And we know that the two reporters have said that they were presented with this data, presumably by some incredibly motivated opposition <laughs> researcher yeah. who's waging some sort of nefarious political battle inside the Catholic Church. It's all going to make a great Dan Brown novel. <laughs> so they get this data set, and then they have to correlate it with other pieces of information that you know. So right, so maybe you have a big data set of like a bunch of phones that were in the vicinity of certain gay bars and certain bathrooms 
bathhouses. And, you know, there aren't that many of those in a big city. So maybe you start with that set of data. And then you say, well, where does the Monsignor mm-hmm. live? Mm-hmm. Okay, he lives here. Okay, hmm, this phone that was at his house all night was also at this gay bar all Friday night. And oh, and then it was at the bathhouse, right? And so just by using those few data points, you can start to stitch together a a sort of sketch of who this person was. And if this all sounds really futuristic, I'd encourage you to go back and read um, a story that my friend Charlie Wurzel did in the New York Times, where they took location data that they obtained from a data broker and were able to determine uh, the movements of people in and around the um, the January 6th Capitol riot. Right. Wow. Um, and it was actually very easy for them to determine the real identities of some of these people who had attended these protests. So that's the, the gist uh, of how this works. And I imagine it's raised uh, lots of questions for you, because I, I know it has for me. Yeah, I mean, one thing that came to mind while you were going through all of that, for me, for sure, was you mentioned there is no law at the present to deal with this. Is there political will at all to make some legislation that could like close this this sort of gap? Yeah, you definitely have advocates in Congress pushing for something like this. Um, Senator Ron Wyden has been really outspoken about the need to rein in these data brokers in particular. Um, You know, everyone gets mad at Facebook for what they do with our data, but the data brokers uh, are actually much worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we we often have no idea how they're even using our data. So yes, there is some political will, but, you know, it ultimately runs into the same uh, issue that you have with any like political question in Congress which is just that Congress is very polarized and very rarely passes any legislation. Right. Yeah. Have there been other cases like this where somebody buys up, you know, putatively anonymized data, but that you can actually de-anonymize if you know where someone lives or works and, you know, uses what they know about a specific person to blackmail them, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that this is one of a range of tactics that we see being used uh for example, by state-level actors mm-hmm. who are cracking mm-hmm. down on dissidents and protesters. You may have heard this year about the NSO Group, which is this Israeli company that builds a variety of uh, sort of spyware products, uh, ways of getting into people's phones, using their location data, but basically just getting whatever data that they can, uh, you know, to, to do awful things. So, yeah, you know, these phones, which are, are so magical in our lives for so many reasons, also do leave these data trails that can wind up leaving us extremely vulnerable. Wow. Casey, you meant you mentioned earlier that at the time that you deleted Grinder, it was owned by a Chinese company. Yeah. Uh, it is no longer owned by a Chinese company, but not for some casual reason, but really because the Committee on Foreign Investment uh, in the US Congress said that it had security concerns about a Chinese company having this kind of data or having access to this kind of data about Uh, American users, and specifically mentioned, I think, members of the military uh, who could be subject to blackmail. And so the company was bought by American investors in, I think, June of 2020 uh, for $608.5 million. Not to get too lost in in the technology of it, but I'm just super curious what the business proposition is for Grindr. It's interesting also that the American people who bought the company, uh, the leaders of that company are straight. As somebody who doesn't use Grindr and never has, I have a lot of curiosity about it. Um, but one of those areas of curiosity is is just, why would people invest in this? Because it's a free to use app, right? Sure. So, you know, 
Grindr is basically like any other media business. In fact, I would say it's actually a lot like Slate. It makes us money through advertising and subscriptions, right? And, you know, just as Slate is a great media business, Grindr is a pretty great media business too. And because it's sort of become synonymous with gay culture in particular, and has become the default meeting place for a lot of gay men, there's just uh, a lot of money in it. Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, uh, one of the ways that (laughs) Grindr made its money before 2020 was by selling user location Mm -hmm. data to advertising networks, right? right? So this exact phenomenon that we're talking about, the use of our location data is essentially totally unregulated. Uh, Grindr was able to use that to turn that into a a really nice business. Um, I know one of the biggest concerns in terms of Grindr selling all this data was that it often included very personal information, like people would disclose their HIV status, people would talk about drug use, what type of sex they like to have. In my mind, that makes Grindr's information more personal and, and potentially more usable for blackmail or other nefarious purposes. But in terms of data security and privacy, is Grindr a particularly bad actor or is this the norm? Um, I mean, I think if you look through the, the history of Grindr privacy cases, they have been a, a bad actor in a lot of ways. They've not done a great job protecting their users. There's this famous case, I wonder if it's even come up on your podcast before, about this poor guy who went through a breakup and then his ex uh, was extremely vengeful and then just sent wave after wave of gay men to his ex's house mm, yeah. promising that they were going to find sex and drugs there. And this has actually now become a, a case that's actually challenging um, Section 230, this part oh, of the wow. Communications Decency Law, which is basically the law in which the entire internet rests. Um, and the person who is suing is saying Grindr had a responsibility to protect I- I- its user here, and, and they didn't. So yeah, I mean, I do think that Grindr has been a bad actor in that case. At the same time, you know, if you're listening to this and you use Grindr, I hope you take this as a moment to look at the data that you've shared with Grindr and just assume that it could one day leak out, right? <laughs> I, I just wouldn't put anything on Grindr that you wouldn't one day not want to be seen, mm-hmm. you know, by, by people who are close to you. Um, of course, in most cases, it won't. But I do think you have to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. You brought up earlier, or you mentioned Scruff in passing. And then also, um, we're talking about this notion of like, straight ownership and, and queer ownership and like, is, is one better than the other. And I feel like you said earlier, too, that you didn't, you personally had decided that Scruff actually wasn't really that much better than Grinder. My like common sense about that, that I've evolved over time is that somehow because Scruff is queer owned that it is better or safer. If that's not true, I would love for you to explain why, (laughs) uh, because that might change some behaviors. Well, I mean, look, I mean, the, the first thing to say is, you know, if it's working for you, you keep using it. I'm not here to talk anybody out of a good time, you know, <laughs> and, and I wouldn't even say that I would never use these apps again. But I do think that they have dynamics that are too rarely commented mm. upon. And for me, the dynamic that just got to me is that I came to view these apps as essentially mechanisms for gay men to create and then enact pornographic fantasies. Mm. Sort of like, what is the hottest thing that you can imagine <laughs> happening? And then can I make that happen uh, like within the next 30 minutes to an hour? Right. Um, and of course, you know, if you'd asked me right when I was getting out of college, you know, would you like to do that? I would say, well, sure. Like that sounds like an incredible time. Mm. But if that becomes your daily lived experience and every day you're trying to find something newer and hotter to do, there's going to be a side effect, which is just 
all of the people that you're leaving behind in your wake who you never want to talk to again because most people don't watch the same porn clip twice. Mm. And so what is the effect of doing that week after week, month after month, year after year? It doesn't matter how hot you are. It doesn't matter how good you are at sex. You are going to have been thrown away and blocked dozens, hundreds of times. I don't think there's a way to do that without your self-esteem taking a hit. I don't think that there's a way to do that without you feeling dehumanized in some way. And so I think if you're going to use these apps, you have to confine them to some spot in your life. Like to me, I think the, the it makes the most sense to use a hookup app like this. If you're on a business trip, you're on a vacation, mm, yeah, right? You're, yeah. you're only going to be there for three days. It could never have been anything else. <laughs> okay. Like I think that that's probably fine to use. But otherwise, like one of my friends said, like it's easier for him to eat zero thin mints than it is for him to eat one thin sure, mint, you sure. know? And like that's sort of how I feel about Grinder and Scruff. It's it's like, if it's in the house, I'm going to yeah. eat it. So I just have to not have it in the house. <laughs> so this brings me to something that I want to ask the gay men on this podcast right now, which is, is Grindr too big to fail? Is it too essential to gay male culture to boycott? And I guess in this sense, I'll lump in scruff because we're assuming that their privacy policies are maybe similar and their effect on self-esteem might be somewhat similar. It's a tough question because I feel like everyone that I talk to, at least, feels like Grindr is toxic at the very, mm. like, even if they don't know about all of this privacy stuff that we're discussing here, they do have a sense that Casey, I think, described really well that it is not like healthy for you to be in this kind of uh, hamster wheel of, of desire all the time. And yet, it like continues to grow and even people who will talk negatively about it still have it or still use it sometimes or will delete it and then reload it again next week. Um, and so it seems very hard for people to sort of totally uh, get it off their phones for good. It must be just because the design of it is, is designed to make you want to stay there, of course, like all apps. Mm. But also, I do think it it activates a certain part of gay male sexual culture that well, I don't think it's like completely unhealthy all the time, is very addictive. There's something very appealing about the kind of the dark room aspect of it, where mm -hmm. you just like you enter into this world where all of these fantasies, like Casey said, are possible. And you probably succeed just often enough to like keep you coming back to it. And I do think a lot of people's imaginations have been like reformatted where they can't imagine meeting someone at a bar anymore. Yeah. That, that, and that that is sort of what scares me. I can't like prove that, but it just feels like it is hard for people to even imagine a different mode of uh, encountering folks or, or sex, you know, just a hookup even. Oh, totally. Or like you go to a bar and people there are on Grindr and Scruff <laughs> messaging right. each other, right? <laughs> right. Like right. you see this happen all the time. Um, I do think that hookup apps are here to stay, you know, in the same way that DoorDash is here mm -hmm. to stay and Amazon Prime is here to stay, right? If I can like mash a, a glass screen with my hand and make <laughs> a hot stranger appear at my doorstep, that behavior is going to continue to exist, right? Like I actually think that the, like the power of Grindr is is extremely understated in terms of like <laughs> what it can do in your life. Yeah. So I do think that that's going to stick around. You know, at the same time, I write about social networks and the thing we see over and over with social networks is that they rise and fall. Mm. You know, that even something that looks, you know, uh, extremely mighty and invincible suddenly isn't, right? So, you know, Facebook is still a big deal, but also people spend more time on TikTok now, right? Mm -hmm. So is Facebook uh, completely 
invincible? Probably not, right? And I sort of feel the same way about Grindr. You know, and I will say that I, I hope that there is a next generation of these apps that uh, do feel more humane, less transactional, try to like take care of the whole person that's using their app instead of just sort of enabling the absolute fastest road to sex all the time. Yeah. I didn't realize this had happened until I read about it while researching this episode, but I saw that Grinder removed after, you know, users had complained for years about the racism on the app. They removed their racial search filter last summer due to the George Floyd uprising. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that just struck me as like one of the most cynical <laughs> responses, one of the most cynical corporate responses to this, you know, movement for social justice. But, you know, oh. better late than never, I guess. Right. Better late than never. But I mean, yeah, and this has been, you know, uh, written about a bunch. The absolutely casual racism that dominated this app, particularly in its first five or six years. Mm-hmm. You know, the Grinder profile field was not long. You know, you'd have maybe 20 or 30 characters. And guys were using it, and their entire profile was just like no Asians. Mm-hmm. It was like, that's yeah. the only thing yeah. you want anyone to know about you, right? right? But again, it just sort of goes into this extremely like inhumane, depersonalized, kind of bizarre culture. Uh, of that app and shame on them for enabling it. Yeah. So pivoting back to the question of privacy, when we're looking at like the terms of service on a new app that I've downloaded onto my phone, they're too long to read. Nobody can stand it. But hearing what we've been talking about today, it makes me want to pay more attention to that. Is there like a control F that I can do on those things that you would recommend to find like the worst possible aspects that would warn me off of possibly participating in an app some way to like digest those things a little bit more easily I love the question, but I honestly just feel like it's naive. Like, nobody <laughs> is going to not use Grindr because of what's in the terms of That's service. That's fair. Right? <laughs> Sorry. I'm not saying that to shame yeah, you, because yeah. I, I think that what it speaks to is that we wish that we did have mechanisms that protected us, and the terms of service should be one of those mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But we're all using so many apps and products on a daily basis, each that have their own terms of service, that even if you set aside a weekend to read all the <laughs> right. relevant terms of service in your life, and you were using Control F, you still probably wouldn't find all the relevant stuff, yeah. right? And no matter what was in the terms of service, these companies would still have the legal right to sell your location mm-hmm. data, and there would be no recourse. So uh, I do think you know we, we should uh, discuss and advocate for some sort of national privacy lot in the EU, they have uh, what they call the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. Mm. That's why you have to click that annoying cookies box (laughs) on every website now, so most people hate GDPR. (laughs) But it does say some really interesting things, like um, hey, if a company collects data about you, you should be able to know what that data Mm. is. Right? Like a pretty straightforward proposition that is actually law in Europe, but is not Mm. here. So I think it's those sorts of things that we should start thinking about really seriously. Maybe companies shouldn't be allowed to sell our location data, right? right? Maybe it's should be illegal to track me from my house to a gay bar to a bathhouse and then sell that data, right? So I think there's a lot of really common sense things that we, we should push for in legislation and not leave to an app's terms of service. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is essentially stalking, tracking <laughs> yeah. where people go. Yeah, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah this, this stuff can get really... Um, really bad. I mean, you know, there's there's no shortage of uh, stories about bad things that have happened to people using these apps. Now, usually it's not because they bought location data from a data broker, right. 
But, you know, I think even for the the non-queer people who are listening to to this podcast, like, this is not just a story about, oh, like, the gays got caught going to a gay bar. It's like, no, like, if you turn it, I I don't know, I think it's off by default, but you can turn on location history in Google Maps, and it will just save every single place that you've been, and it'll email you at the end of the month. It's it's like, how are people (laughs) committing crimes in a world where this feature exists, (laughs) Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) The jig is up. (laughs) So, you know, these, these kinds of data, you know, that we're talking about today, they're actually being generated by most of the apps on your phone that you're using all the time. You ever wonder why there's 400 weather apps? Well, it's because they were all collecting your location data and selling Mm. it, right? You can't have a weather app without location data. So they were just selling it to ad networks. These kind of apps are so common. These kind of uses are so common. And so I'm glad we're talking about it. Wow, yeah. It's like every single app's business model is just spying on you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you started to hear some tech companies talk about, like they'll call it a, a data minimization framework. And the whole idea is like, how can we build this while obtaining the least data possible? And then how can we dispose of that data after, you know, a certain period of time? And I think it's really great. Uh, you know, Snap, which is, has grown into a pretty big company, grew on the back of this wonderful insight into human behavior, which is that maybe all of our conversations should just not be permanent. <laughs> right? Maybe we should have a, a conversation that goes unrecorded and unshared, um, and that just disappears at the end of us having it. And they're a multi-billion dollar company. So I actually think there's a lot of money yeah. here for entrepreneurs who want to build products that uh, do make us a little bit more privacy protected. Totally. I was going to pivot into how should we feel about priests being outed, but I actually think don't need to talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's, um, I was like, I was like reading some of the stories before I got on this podcast and I I just, because I'm not a religious person, but then you read like all of these rules and prohibitions and we'll kick you out of the church if we, uh, it's like they're doing everything they can to make what this guy did as hot as possible. (laughs) And so like he never, he never had a chance. Oh, I mean, just the prospect of getting caught must have made that time at the gay bar in the bathhouse you that much more You can feel the heat, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and seriously, yeah, someone just needs to turn it into like a like an erotic Kindle single and I'll buy that because it sounds amazing. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Casey. This has been incredibly informative and uh, a little bit of fun, too. Well, it's my <laughs> pleasure. Uh, no one has ever asked me to talk about Grinder before. So when y'all emailed me, I was like, you know what? I would like to go talk about <laughs> And I enjoyed myself quite a lot. So thank you for having me. Hopefully this won't be the last time you get <laughs> sure. to talk about it yeah. on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Whenever, whenever there's another gay app in the news, hit me up. <laughs> awesome. Will do. Will do. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. 
Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So in introducing a movie, I would normally try to do better than just reading the IMDb tagline. But in the case of Swang Song, I gotta say IMDb really had it right. <laughs> and I quote, a formerly flamboyant hairdresser takes a long walk across a small town to style a dead woman's hair, end quote. In a way, that is really all that happens in Todd Stevens' remarkable new film. Pat Pitsenbarger, played exquisitely by Udo Kier, leaves his nursing home and walks across Sandusky, Ohio, in search of a bottle of Vivante hair product so that he can honor a former client's dying wish that he make her up for the viewing. Yet, somehow, that simple journey serves as a canvas for one of the richest portraits of queer life that I really think I've ever seen, uh, especially in regard to gay aging and grief and queer life in a small town. If that sounds a bit heavy for you, I should also know that Jennifer Coolidge is here as Pitsenbarger's salon nemesis. So <laughs> there's a, a great deal of uh, comedy in that pairing. My feeds have been slowly filling with folks discovering this movie over the past few weeks. It came out in uh, early August, I believe, to, to streaming. Um, and people are really loving it. So I definitely wanted to introduce it to our listeners. But I'm also dying to know what you two thought of it. Please tell me. I absolutely loved it. I did not go into this movie with very high expectations, I confess. Right. I kind of had a feeling, oh, God, another small town, you know, another small town gay life. Uh, there is, spoiler alert, a gay bar that's about to close. Uh, and it's not really a spoiler. And I just <laughs> felt I'd seen that. It's also by the director and creator of another gay movie. Yes. And Another gay sequel, Gays Gone Wild. And, you know, honestly, I haven't seen those films, but I just feel like I've seen those films. And this, just forget everything I just said. This is gorgeous. It's beautiful. And it does the thing that I most want art to do, which is to evoke an emotion. Like mm -hmm. the story, it really can be summarized in a sentence. It's not about twists and stories. It's about complex feelings memories, uh, associations, hopes for the future, whatever, mm -hmm. being just evoked in a remarkable, lasting way. Like, I still am flashing back to feelings that I had when I watched this movie, you know, four or five days ago now. And I think very specifically, it's just the first time I've seen a particular period or a person who lived through a particular period really the complications of their life mm -hmm. evoked. Like I just to say, this is not a perfect movie, but on this score, it's wonderful. This particular error that I'm thinking of is people, in the case of gay men, who lived through AIDS, mm -hmm. or the ones who survived and then the ones that they lost, but also people who, if they had a gay life, they had to do it. They had no choice but to do it by kind of... What is the phrase I'm looking for? Just kind of... Sheer force of their will, personality. Yeah, yeah sheer force of will, personality, just being out there, mm -hmm. literally mm -hmm. being out there and having to, you know, create a shell, to construct a shell around them, to put on certain, uh, you know, certain moves, certain, mm -hmm. you know, bitchy turns of phrase that were essential for their survival that they became very good at often, but that ultimately they did not have rights. So mm -hmm. they, if they had a partner... 
who may well have died, uh, especially during the AIDS era, their families could come forth and yeah. you know take all their stuff. You know that nowadays things are better, and people might say, "Well, you know things are better now, right?" And yeah, they are. Thank you, but. What about those people? You know, there's no reparations yeah. for gay people. Yeah. Right. I don't get any refunds for all those extra taxes that I paid from my partner's insurance, mm-hmm. which was free mm-hmm. to the straight married people. And there's something very powerful about that that I absolutely, I was just so glad to see. Yeah. Yeah. For me, um, I had an older person, an older gay person in my life mm. who wasn't out to basically anyone but me. Mm. And he died in a nursing home mm. a couple years ago. And for for a couple of reasons, including just his appearance, the main character in this film reminded me a lot of him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I couldn't think of anything else while watching this other than I wish he had had this chance to do what Pat does in this film, which he's forgiving people not for their sake, not because they deserve it necessarily, but for his own sake, mm-hmm. you know, for his own sense of closure, he gets what actually a lot of people, not just gay people, don't get at the end of their life, which is the chance to put a, a bow on all of these things that had happened in their life, have one last hurrah, yeah. and also let go of some bitterness. Mm-hmm. The thing that I found really unique about this film in terms of a, a lot of gay narratives in general, but especially ones about elder queers is it didn't involve a coming out story. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't about right. anyone who was closeted to their family or who were even really dealing with shame. You know, that's not Pat at all. One of my favorite scenes that comes pretty early on in the film, you know, he encounters this sort of ornery guy, an ornery cashier at the convenience store making fun of the sort of femme cigarette that he purchases. The Morris, and he goes, yeah. you know, wow, yeah, your wife still smokes those? (laughs) And he just takes a puff and says, she adores them. (laughs) And, you know, he's not trying at all to de-queenify himself. And to June's point about the sort of shell that he constructs, I thought of when we watched The Boys in the Band for this podcast Mm -hmm. about a year ago, you know, the remake. And that film sort of turned me off in part because they were all so mean to each other that I felt was supposed to be indicative of, you know, a certain kind of gay male bonding that does exist, but that I found very off-putting. But it's much clearer here that, you know, his little insults, even the way he needles his friends, Mm -hmm. is really a response to the way he's been let down by the people in his life and also, like, the structures of society that he inhabits and, you know, his need to project that kind of self-confidence, which masks a very soft and vulnerable and gentle center that we also get to see in the way he Mm. cares for his clients Mm -hmm. and the people in his own nursing home. Yeah. So I liked that a lot. I think at times the specific plot points could be a little pat, uh, (laughs) forgive the Mm -hmm. pun. Definitely. In a way that I attributed to the fact that Todd Stevens, who wrote and directed it, wrote this about an actual hairdresser in his own town of Sandusky that he sort of admired from afar throughout his childhood. You know, we've actually talked about this with Uncle Frank, with Happiest Season, where these are queer creators uh, revisiting themes in their own life or Mm -hmm. times or locations in their own life and sort of recreating them in in ways that feel cathartic. I sort of got that sense for a lot of the little cutesy plot points or the, you know, little interactions, little heartwarming interactions that happen in this film. But it was easy for me to overlook those because of the performance of Udo Kier. Yeah. Mm. And Mm. like I said, just the 
um, singularity of this character in the story. Yeah, I don't think we can overstate how much uh, Udo's performance mm. just elevates this thing to something well yeah. beyond what it deserves, you know, the, the sort of mm-hmm. some of its parts. Um, and the way that he plays that journey from, you were talking about the different guards and shells that this this character puts up. You know, we meet him in the nursing home and he's basically like completely uh, withdrawn. Like he he's sort yeah. of in sweatpants and lying on, on his lazy boy all day, except for when he cares for this one woman who seems to be catatonic in some way, I think, um, does her hair for her. But um, otherwise, he's just sort of receded completely into himself. And then he gets this invitation to come and do the hair and just sort of like blossoms out of that into this inc- incredible queen. But even that, as you guys rightly point out, is a shell, too, of, of sort of protection. So it's interesting. It's almost like Russian dolls of, of some sort. <laughs> yeah. June, I wanted to pick up on something you said. I was interested, too, in this movie and how we get an elder queer who is not a saint. Who It's not a hagiography. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, look how wonderful. Tell us your wisdom. It's a person <laughs> who's really, like, kind of complicated is one word, but mm-hmm. like broken in some ways. I think mm-hmm. per- a bit of an alcoholic p- potentially has just a lot of different struggles that are allowed to come up in this film in a yeah. way that it would be very easy to sort of sanitize and not want to see. Um, and something about that texture yeah. and then Udo's performance of it just like captivated me. I could not get enough of this of this guy. Yeah, I, 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 I'm amazed at how that was all done in such a such a sort of modest movie in a lot of ways. The whole film has this kind of 90s sort of scale to it. And because of that, almost a little bit of like, just a touch of like surrealism. Like Mm -hmm, some of those mm -hmm. scenes that Christina's talking about that feel kind of, you know, like they had to fit a few in in one day or whatever, like in terms of the filming, (laughs) something about the way they're edited together creates almost this like fairy tale feeling for me. And I just, I don't know that I've seen much else like it. What other, what other sort of themes did you guys uh, really pick up on that you felt like were interesting? I mean, I think most of the movie uh, kind of refers back to the past. There's a lot mm-hmm. of memories, a lot of, as you say, uh, kind of dealing with emotions, making peace yeah. with some of the things that have happened in life. Uh, but there are also glimpses of the future. Uh, it's interesting that we this episode have been talking about Grinder mm. uh, because there's a, a slightly odd interaction uh, with, you know, some talk about apps and, and about the kind of, you know, the way that you can order up sex now. But more movingly, there's also a scene where Pat at least appears to be seeing some gay dads playing with their sons. And at first, you know, this is something that Pat has no interest in watching the children. Uh, what kind of development is this? But as he sometimes does, he says, you know, someone will remember them. No one will remember us. And that's mm-hmm. in some ways like it's a bit of a, oh, God, you know, that, that's you're putting your finger on the scales a bit there. <laughs> but also that is really profound. That is really mm-hmm. true. There's, you know, th- there's something about the loneliness of old age that has been something for many, you know, queer people for years. I remember reading a book, it's called uh, Sex Variant Woman, because the woman put together one of the first bibliographies of lesbian literature that was called Sex Variant Women in ah, Literature. Cool. And she had a super out life, you know, she, she was a pioneer. But when she got old, she didn't have money to go to some special you know, nursing home, she was basically forced back into the closet after, you know, decades of outness. And I think there are, you know, we all know examples. Christina, you mentioned Mm -hmm. one. Like, 
one of the great challenges of gay life has been, you know, not being alone, not finding other people like yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the great things about Grindr is that now you can find people, <laughs> but we also end up often being alone. And, yeah. you know, to get to something so central with such a little, almost a grace note, that was really amazing. And, you know, because the movie wasn't always quite so, you know, it was sometimes a little bit obvious. Um, yeah. You know, the scenes in the gay bar were not particularly successful, although I know exactly what he was trying for. I also think later in the film, it makes the point that even if you don't have children, right. you know, or members of your biological family, or even people who you know, mm -hmm. there's still a thread that connects queer people of different generations. Yeah. There was a real Pat Pitsenbarger who was a hairdresser in Todd Stevens town. I read an interview with him. Mm -hmm. He said he wore a velvet fedora, a feather boa, an outrageous pantsuit, <laughs> you know, and this was just somebody who he watched. He said he sort of became obsessed with him, even though he didn't know him. And this was someone who gave him the freedom to sort mm -hmm. of be different. And, you know, maybe it didn't even need to be that they were both queer or that they were both the same brand of queer. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about the first queer people who I knew as a kid, who maybe without me even knowing it, had an impact on me. Mm -hmm. Even even as occasionally I've thought back at the first queer people who I knew, you know, these two lesbians who worked at my middle school. In some ways, I think, oh, maybe knowing them and having that be my mm -hmm. first introduction to queerness made it harder for me to see that in myself because they, I didn't see myself right, in them, right. you know, in terms of aesthetics or gender presentation or whatever. But, you know, watching this film and, you know, at the end, sort of hearing about the impact that Pat had had on someone's life, I thought, you know, maybe those people's very existence made it easier for me because they got other people accustomed to queerness. Mm -hmm. You know, that can be said of the whole generation yeah. or yep. two that came before me. But, yeah. you know, they also made it easier to be different in that school, regardless of sexuality or gender presentation. And, you know, it's my dearest hope that I can have that impact on someone's life, even if I don't know them. So I try to be extra gay in public yeah, all the all time. The time. You would look great in a in a leisure suit and a fedora too. <laughs> God, I love that the seafoam leisure the suit that was just Ugh, so gorgeous. Gorgeous. I wanted to talk about one thing, which is that the issue of queer labor, I think, is taken up in this film in an interesting way. What I mean mm. by that is um the central uh, sort of uh, machine driving the plot again is that he has to go style this deceased client's hair. She is a uh, a Republican um, in her life. She was a Republican, and and he knew this, um, and that was a part of their relationship. Um, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but but you sort of find out that there was a lot of pain for him in this because because as much as he sort of idolized her for for her beauty and and like you know sort of treated her like a muse i think a little bit for his mm -hmm. craft for his work um she she really didn't return the respect uh back to him that he was sort of entitled to but then made this request at the end um and so there's this interesting comparison i think between the work that he's asked to do for her to create beauty um, and then there's another scene where he is in a drag bar um, and has to help a queer person uh, with that skill set, uh, in addition to doing his own drag, which is amazing. 
Um, and I just thought the juxtaposition of those two uses of like hairdressing, which is such a stereotype, has like a bad ring to it. But like a old school, like gay talent was something that I enjoyed seeing played out. And and I don't know that the movie has like a super strong opinion about whether, for example, wasting what was it a waste of time to dedicate so much energy to this Republican woman. But it is interesting to think about where we direct our special mm-hmm. talents. Um, and I think I think mm-hmm. the movie kind of asks that question a little bit. It's funny because I don't think this was intentional. I think this was meant to be a heartwarming moment. But for me, it felt sort of sour where Pat goes into this black beauty salon that used to be the beauty supply store that he frequented. Right, right. Um, And, you know, they help him out by giving him, you know, they're afraid that his head is going to get sunburned on this long walk. So they give him the hat that was hanging on the wall under the portrait of the salon's dead matriarch. So he puts on this gorgeous hat. They sort of give him like a yas queen, which, (laughs) fine. And then he leaves and sort of immediately casually removes the flowers from it and tosses them on the ground, except for one flower that he keeps on his lapel. And this sort of reminded me of a part of A Star is Born, Mm. that remake with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, where they end up um, getting married in a black church, Uh, where uh. it just feels like there's this, you know, generosity of people of color, minor black characters being used to advance the growth of the white protagonist without Mm -hmm. him really doing anything to deserve it and, Mm -hmm. and their labor not really being recognized other than for what it can do for the white protagonist who we're all rooting for. Um, So, you know, that was one moment where I felt like Todd Stevens' analysis of what that meant felt a little shallow, but um, I actually think, you know, from a critic's perspective, it fits in with what you were talking about, Brian, in terms of where do we direct our labor, who gets to be the beneficiary of our talents, Mm -hmm. and who, Mm -hmm. you know, deserves um, the gifts that we've been given from our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I think uh, we are all pro everyone seeing this um, is certainly mm-hmm. worth a watch. Um, very, very lovely way to spend an evening. Uh, it's streaming on Amazon Prime, YouTube, probably a few other places. Uh, so go check it out. And definitely spread the word. I feel like it's rare that we get to see, again, this kind of small, quieter, like 90s style uh, mm-hmm. qu- queer movie anymore. And yeah. um, watching it, if, if nothing else, it just made me miss that, like that, yeah. that feeling. Um, and then, of course, this film is in itself fantastic. So uh, it is called Swan Song. It's from Todd Stevens, uh, and it's streaming now. So check it out. Well, that's about it for this month. But before we go, we've got your monthly updates to the gay agenda. Christina, what do you have? I am recommending a newsletter, which is a new format for me. Um, The one I'm recommending is by the author Eric Cervini, who was Mm -hmm. a Pulitzer finalist for his book, The Deviant's War, which came out last year about gay rights pioneer Frank Kameny. His newsletter is called Queer History 101. And every issue is a little primer on some individual or a moment in history, usually ancient history, uh, that we might find to be a little queer today. You know, stipulating that it's obviously ahistorical to call ancient people gay or <laughs> trans, you know, since those concepts didn't exist. Yeah, I had my hand raised. I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, like fully aware of that. Um, But the whole series, in addition to sort of reminding us that contemporary norms or mores are in a lot of ways unique to our own time and place, you know, there have been people subverting whatever norms existed in their own time since the beginning of time, um, whether those norms be sexual or gender based. Um, So the newsletter has just been full of some really fun facts that I kind of am always looking for places to interject in (laughs) dinner party conversation and rarely find. Mm -hmm. For instance, did you know that Sappho, lesbian icon extraordinaire, Mm -hmm. was portrayed in the classical era as a sexual predator of men. So the word lesbiazine, pronouncing that wrong, I'm sure, actually meant someone who enjoyed performing fellatio. Whoa. Wow. I know. I know. Word history. Uh, The newsletter also covers some more complicated issues. Um, There was a recent one about ancient Greece that talked about the tradition of pederasty among Greek men and the changing ways that historians have sort of interpreted that practice and increasingly recognizing the harm that was done to the young boys involved in that. You know, something we obviously consider abuse today. But... you know, it's it offers discussion questions and citations for further reading. It's kind of like a syllabus if you wanted to use it that way. Um, and certainly opens a lot of moments in history to your own interpretation. So again, it's called Queer History 101 by Eric Servini. Highly recommend it. Oh, I am definitely signing up for that. Yeah, totally. Right away. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I want to recommend a book that I read recently, partly because... It's a history book, but it's about a period I lived through in a very kind of conscious way. I wasn't like a nipper who was, you know, (laughs) just sort of seeing things happen above my head. I was in the middle of this thing. And yet when I read the book, I realized that despite having been part of it, my memories had gotten kind of shifted by what has happened since. So the book that I'm talking about is called Olivia on the Record, A Radical Experiment in Women's Music by Ginny Burson. And I think the fact that I've said women's music, uh, you know, nowadays, because it kind of, you know, we stopped having bookstores where we could go and hear this music. We don't really have the concerts or the gatherings anymore where the performers of that genre do their thing. And I just kind of have these hazy memories of, well, these would be the places where you would see your people the most. Like Mm. there would be thousands of women in a concert hall. There, you know, there might be thousands at a festival. And Ginny Burson, of course, was one of the Furies. So she has Mm -hmm. a lot of experience of radical uh, organizing, radical politics. And after she left the Furies, like a lot of the Furies, actually went into kind of, you know, radical creative projects. And one of hers was Olivia, uh, which was the first women's record label. They kind of defined that genre. Meg Christian, who was also her lover and uh, was one of the artists, as was Chris Williamson. And I think we kind of get stuck in that moment um, with those two white, kind of folky performers. But the book is a really good reminder that actually, you know, Olivia, just, which was just one label, um, you know, actually realized right away after they'd had two 
kind of big hits from white women that, okay, we have to have some women of color recording now. We have to diversify the kind of music that we're playing. And they did. And also she tells the story of something which I had heard uh, on an episode of, of the Slate podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, about a very um, kind of difficult moment in their history when Olivia worked with a trans woman who was a recording engineer, and this caused the oh, conflicts yeah. that we're familiar with now. But I had no idea that that had happened. And Olivia, you know, women's music is often now written off as transphobic, you know, without much, maybe for a certain aspects of it have been, but, you know, the whole genre gets tarred with that. And that actually, you know, there certainly were some turfs who were complaining about the use of a trans woman, but, you know, that the label used her. So anyway, just an interesting book. Uh, and I found it a useful corrective to some kind of weird ideas that had, had kind of changed the record that I actually lived through. That sounds really interesting. I feel like I had definitely heard that story about the trans engineer. Maybe it was in that documentary that I watched about Curve. But yeah, that surprised me too. And yeah, I've got to read that book. Thank you, June. Brian, what are you recommending this month? Okay. So it's Virgo season, and this is a very, at least when we're taping it is, I forget when it ends. But yeah, this at the moment, it's Virgo season, uh, my birthday season. And so those powers in me are strong. Um, and I just want to <laughs> recommend something that I uh, used recently that, that was very much in line with sort of Virgo energies, but I also think everyone would benefit from. The boys and I went on a camping trip a couple of weeks ago to a um, camp out and music festival, queer music festival in um, Pennsylvania. And we decided to get a new tent because we felt like our tent just like wasn't doing what we wanted it to do. And we ended up getting a two room tent. I did not know that such what? a thing existed, uh, but apparently you'll Google it and find them. But a two-room tent that actually was easier to set up than the the old kinds with like the poles and everything. This one is just like a pop-up. Oh, wow. But the two rooms, let me tell you, this is a game changer. You can have, so one room ends up being like your bedroom. So you put the like mm -hmm. mattress and all that stuff in there. <laughs> the mattress. Uh, you're talking about camping. You know, you'll put the mattress. Your air, in oh, the oh, room. the air mattress for sure. Uh, <laughs> and then in the other room, that becomes then your like gear space. Wow. And for me in the past, like stuff gets all over the floor when you're camping, right? Yeah. Like think you just cannot, it's impossible to keep it organized no matter how much you try. There's just clothes everywhere or whatever. Just having this little divider suddenly like, instituted a whole regime of order on the tent like i, I could not have imagined <laughs> like the clothes all stayed oh in one God. nice place the you know the toiletries and all that stuff stayed on like another side the food part was somewhere else and then there was just like this wonderful expanse of negative space <laughs> in the middle where you could sort of have a living room by which i mean you sit on the floor but like or sit on the ground <laughs> But there was room for that. And then when you were ready to retire for the evening, you go into the bedroom and drop the little divider down. And it's like, you know, closing the door on the world. Um, wow. Oh, my gosh. Fantastic. So if you are a camper and if you uh, are someone who's into organization, a Virgo, perhaps, <laughs> two-room tent will make your gay life even better. I uh, cannot recommend it enough. Aw, I'm so happy 